You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. The 602 Club proudly presents Snyder Cuts, a Zack Snyder directorial podcast, and I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is every single week on this journey, the one, the only, Ozymandias. Yeah, no, no, I'm not Ozymandias. No, 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 I wouldn't. You sure you're not Ozymandias? Because I, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah no, I, I guess I, you're lacking blonde hair. So, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, okay. Not only am I lacking blonde hair, but I'm also not a complete sociopath. Well, okay, <laughs> that's not entirely true, because I think I'm somewhere between Rorschach and Owlman, probably. I'm probably well, in that gray wow, area. That's, whew. There's a, it's a lot of room there, bro. Less than you think, <laughs> my friend. Less than you think. Oh, my goodness. Well, we are uh, going to have a great time because, of course, as you can tell, we have reached Watchmen tonight. And so we're going to be talking all through Zack Snyder's adaptation of the famous Alan Moore comic. But uh, before we get there, uh, please do... Give us a star rating review over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, we'd really appreciate it for the 602 Club, as that is where you find this show. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Please follow us at the 602 Club. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We're also online at trekfm. You can also find us on Instagram at the 602 Club TFM. And, of course, we've got the Babel Conference where you can check out and talk to listeners from all over the country and the world at, with all the different shows that we're doing. And then last but not least, uh, if you'd like to send us an email, go to the trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, and that will come to John and I. And then I also did want to mention, uh, you can support us. If you like the shows that we do here in the network, please support us over on Patreon so that we can make sure all of these shows keep coming to you ad-free. And that's at patreon.com slash trek.fm. So, John, I think uh, for for kind of setting the stage before we even get to the movie of course we have to talk about the comic and what our experiences were i think with that because for the age group that we're in specifically i mean this is a seminal work of comics especially in that late 80s early 90s time period and so how did you discover the comic and was this a comic that you were a fan of before the movie came out okay uh, I came to the comic late, actually. Uh, I had an older brother. He was a huge comic book fan. But when I went into his collection to steal stuff, it was usually X-Men, the occasional Superman, a lot of Batman, naturally, uh, stuff like that. And I never really ventured toward the graphic novels because those brought special punishment if you touched them. Um, and also, you know, like uh, I did read Dark Knight Returns, uh, you know, at the time, but that was released I issue by issue originally. So I stole those one piece at a time. Um, but I didn't encounter it until, uh, and this is really weird. I, I don't know why I feel prompted to share this, but I was actually working for a professional theater, professional regional theater uh, on crew. And uh, somebody found out I had never watched, never watched, I had never read Watchmen. But I was a comic book fan, and, and uh, I think the guy's nickname was Lofty. And he said, you've got to read it. You have to read Watchmen. So I dutifully went out, and I, I went to the comic book store, and I got a copy, and, and I devoured it. You know, just straight through. Absolutely devoured it. Suddenly understood it. 
And of course, the the conversation at the time turned into the fact that even back then, people were talking about turning it into a movie. And all of us were like, oh my gosh, this would be an incredible movie. It's all laid out there right for you. But how on earth would you, this is huge. You can't possibly do this as a movie. There's too much happening. Um, but that's that's how I came across the comic. How did you how did you come across it? Yeah, um, I believe that I came across this when I was working at a Barnes and Noble uh, in grad school, uh, and I I started to get more into comics by that point. Um, I think that's in the era, uh, film wise, where like Superman Returns was coming out, and I was I'm a huge Superman fan anyway, so I just started getting into comics more. I bought the big omnibus version of of uh, the Death and Return of Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I started getting into other comics, and somebody recommended this to me, and I remember reading it then and thinking, man, this is good, you know. But it wasn't till the movie came out. And I reread the comic, and I think I just, you know, it's one of those things. I think the first time you read it, you're kind of so overwhelmed by everything that's going on in it. I think it really is one of those things that doesn't really, it really takes a reread to kind of truly have everything click with you. Um, and, And even then, of course, you know, the Black Pirate stuff can still be a real trip. So, um. I really, I, I mean, I. This is a comic to which I actually just ended up buying the uh, deluxe edition that had just come out. It wasn't too expensive, but I was like, I, w- I want to go back uh, to the comic and, and read it even again, and just have a copy around so I can read it. And of course, this is also it was on uh, Times Best 100 Novels of the Last Century as well. You know, so this is this is a comic that had definitely completely transcended the format. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the transcend of the format become a thing in and of itself. And, you know, so I wanted to ask you as you're, we're approaching the film then, because this is so interesting and it's something that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, because obviously after the movie came out, the conversation was whether or not the movie was really unfilmable and, you know, it doesn't do it justice and everything. And, and so, um, I had an answer for myself to this question, but I was interested for you is that when you're at a, you're making an adaptation of anything, mm-hmm. right? You can never do anything one for one. I mean, sure. it, there's no way. Uh, and so um, when you're approaching an adaptation, does is, is that something that you're looking towards uh, so that you're just seeing how they a- adapt it? Or with something like this, are you, are you just hoping that they stay absolutely as close as possible to the source material? No, I, I think I've... Uh, I think it's foolish to think that they're going to stay, you know, oh, it's going to be 100% faithful. It's it's impossible. Every story has to be optimized for the medium in which it's told, right? Watchmen works because Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, because Gibbons gets the credit, right. Moore doesn't, uh, it, on, on screen for Watchmen. But th- there is, even if you're talking just a novel to screen, but there's there are things you have to cut. I always point back. More people have seen The Godfather than have read The Godfather. Right. And when I read The Godfather, it blew my mind how much of the movie was uh, how much of the book was cut for the movie. It is 
it is a completely different experience than the film. But that's because of the fact that Puzo had the room to explore all of these different things. And of, sure. Oh, and yeah. of course, yeah. something interesting happens in The Godfather that makes The Godfather Part 3 impossible. But hey, the thing is that more absolutely blew the doors open in terms of what you could do with the comic medium with right. Watchmen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's always fascinating to me because it's pretty much contemporary with The Dark Knight Returns. But Dark Knight Returns, just about everybody on the face of the planet at least gets the reference to it, uh, who has any passing knowledge of comics, whereas Watchmen is still a deep cut for people. Like, that's that's one step further down the, the comic path, if you will. Um, but no, I, I, do, I, I was always intrigued for how they would tell the story on screen. But I never thought, well, they have to include X, Y, or Z. There were a couple of things where I was like, yeah, like if they had been like, we're telling this story of Watchmen, but Rorschach isn't in it. I'd be like, okay, invalid, right? <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> yes, absolutely. But the comedian's a nice guy. I'm like, mm, that's not really to the spirit of things. But like, <laughs> there's definitely no one-to-one expectation. I, I tried my best not to have it. You know, I, I think... Um... You know, as I was watching this, and I've seen it a few times uh, as a film, but I, as I was thinking about it this time, I was really kind of putting it in my mindset. You know, doing this comic in many ways feels like Jackson doing Lord of the Rings, you mm. know, where it's like it's a really difficult adaptation, and there's, of course, no way you can do it all. And so what you're trying to do is distill, okay, what is the spirit of this thing? What is the spirit of the story and how do we get that to be portrayed on screen? And then, two, you always have to think, even though you're in a visual medium medium as a comic, what works on film that doesn't work on in a comic and what works in a comic that still won't work in a film? Mm -hmm. You know, because, again, it can't ever be a one for one. So, you know, I I think it's an interesting concept to kind of come to this and, and kind of think about that. And so. I know you've seen this before, but yeah. this is the first time that you've seen Zack Snyder's director's cut of this. Yeah. And so what was your response to this then as opposed to your original response just to the theatrical cut? Theatrical cut, I didn't love. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. I came out of the theater and I said, it's it's close. It's, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on. I thought... Again, and we've said this repeatedly. Everybody says this repeatedly who has an eye, I think. But, I mean, Larry Fong and Zack Snyder together. I mean, it, some of the imagery is just Great ridiculous. Yeah. It's like it is a living painting in so many ways. And I definitely think yeah. uh, I definitely think Snyder and Fong don't get enough credit for how they photograph action. Because I think that. Yes, people get caught up and it's like, oh, he's doing the slow motion throws and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a it's a trick. It's a visual flair. But when you break down the images, they're gorgeous. They're absolutely gorgeous. Um, like when comedian gets thrown out the window, it's an absolutely yeah. stunning yeah. shot. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, and the fight scenes are all worked out really, really well. That said, I wasn't crazy for it because I thought I was like, okay, the Ozymandias arc with the 
you know, with Lee Iacocca and the other titans of industry, I was like, that didn't really feel, it didn't feel worked out enough. I felt there were some leaps in the narrative here and there, not even talking about, oh, well, you need this from the book in there. It was like, it just felt like there were some gaps. Like they, they took an extra step when they should have taken a half step sort of thing to get from point A to point B. The director's cut, I think, is a uh, superior. I mean, this is the first time I've watched it in years, probably since 2009. Uh, so I've got plenty of distance between the last time I read the book and the last time I saw the film. So I was able to come at it as clean as possible. I still think it's imperfect in a couple of different ways. And, we, we, you know, we can get to that. But it's definitely this confirms what I guess I was going to fear that I was going to learn from this, which is that Snyder's director's cuts are going to probably wind up being consistently better than the theatrical cuts. Because especially when this comes out in 2009, you've got Marvel starting to fire on all cylinders. Marvel has sort of taken on the the landscape here. There's especially not a taste at this time for a big dramatic three hour epic comic book movie. So I'm not saying this in an aggrandizing way because it would be easy to say, Oh, well it's ahead of its time. It's not that it's ahead of its time. It's that it doesn't fit the expectation of the time. It's not that, you know, everybody's crazy for hamburger and here comes uh, pizza, right? They're going to be people that love it, but everybody's eating hamburger right now, you know? And that's a clumsy analogy, but I think you get what I'm saying. Well, no, I, and because I, one of the things I think it, it's apt at, a, you know, a thought, because in many ways, isn't that the way the comic was, too? Even when it came out, like, mm. there are people that recognize it for what it is, but it wasn't for everyone, and not True. everybody loved it. You know, and so I think absolutely the film hits and and, and you're totally right. Um, I don't think people were necessarily ready for a very gritty, dark version. And we, we use those terms all the time. But this literally is the gritty, dark universe of comics. Very realistic. We're, we're you know, we're we're in we're completely in it, you know, and I I don't think people were ready for that. You know, and and I I think in some ways you you see kind of what I will kind of say I think Zach is somewhat always ahead of his time because the same thing happens I think and we can get it to it later obviously but you mentioned his director's cuts always tend to be better and well you know I know you don't love BVS and we'll get to it to see how it how it sits with you now but you you always liked the the ultimate version his director's cut of that better. You know, yeah. and so it's it's like, but I don't think people were necessarily ready for that either, because again, they were eating the Marvel hamburger, and he's giving them pizza, and and again, people aren't in the mood for pizza; they're in the re- mood for hamburger. So, you know, I I think that's a really good reference point because, you know, I don't necessarily think people were ready for this, and and, you know, I do think it is um I. <laughs> You would think that studios would just learn to let him do his movie, mm-hmm. though, because the director's cut is always superior to the theatrical cut. And I think, again, maybe if you had just released this in 
theaters, this this director's cut, it would have helped people because this version of the movie, I think, tells the more full story to which somebody who hasn't necessarily read the comic, right, would I think get more out of because there are more connection points between all of the different stories that make the movie feel richer and connect better. Well, there there are two there are two things I want to I want to hit on with this is you're right he's setting it in the quote unquote real world, but that's the thing in and of itself is the whole conceit of Watchmen that you have to sign up for is that it's the real world as we understand physics to work, except it's different than the real world we knew existed at the time because right. Dr. Manhattan right. is there, because yep. Ozymandias, because Nixon's in his third or fourth term or whatever. Um, and it is a – it's just it's just a sticky wicket. It's a, it's a tough one too because it's easy to sort of throw the shade on Marvel, but Nolan's having his great success with the Dark Knight at this point. Sure. And so the Dark Knight is dark. The Dark Knight is dark. It's philosophically weighty. It is really and truly a magnificent tour de force of a film, a masterpiece. And what's difficult is that is as real world as you're going to get with a comic book movie. You know, you still have the James Bond aspect with the technology that's a bit ahead of its time. And there are, you know, certain leaps here and there. But that's as real as it's going to get. And uh, then you have Marvel, which is more the candy coated. And then Watchmen sort of sits in this in-between zone of it's it's got the sensibilities of the Dark Knight, but the fantastical nature of the Marvel movies. And so it's this hybrid that is definitely not going to mesh for a lot of people because sure. it doesn't exist in either either sort of realm Uh in terms of the connections, I definitely think in the director's cut that the uh, Ozymandias' motivations and his machinations are a lot clearer. They are a lot clearer than they were in the theatrical cut. They cut that down to the bone so much so that I remember coming out of that theatrical cut and saying uh, people didn't really care about alternative energy sources back then. And that in and of itself is a, a flip out from the book because in the book, they're using a fake alien invasion to trick everybody. Right. Whereas in this, Ozymandias wants to give the world clean energy. And yeah, everybody wanted clean energy back in the 80s as well. But having been through the 80s, it wasn't as top of mind as... You know, but at the same time, you know, we're dealing with an alternate timeline sort of thing. So, but it, it, well, and, yeah. and I mean, it also connects with the fact that he makes the switch from it being the alien to it being Dr. Manhattan. Right. As if, you know, like it's because really it's not really about clean energy. He's tricking Dr. Manhattan into right. helping him create the bombs, which are going to make it look like Dr. Manhattan is the one who finally got fed up with humanity and basically told it to get its S together or he would destroy the world. Right. And so the lie is actually that Dr. Manhattan is your new God and behave on the planet earth or he will come and give you a big, huge spanking. Right. <laughs> like that's, that's, that's the conceit, uh, which I think, 
you know, that's one of the things, obviously, which was a contention for people with the, the comic, uh, not being ad- adapted here with the alien. But as you think about it, I think it makes it much cleaner. <laughs> you hmm. know, the, the whole clean energy, the energy thing, and all of that. I think it makes the motivations much easier, and it works really well. Again, this is one of those places where you have to make the decision on how to adapt for screen. Um, and I think this is just a um, a much better version for the screen because it takes a lot less explaining sure. and it was a lot easier to work into the rest of the story so you could get those motivations and everything. And, you know, you have this guy who is the smartest man in the world, but the only, the best solution he can come up with is a lie to bring humanity together, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really interesting thing. Like he's, he's, the world is so broken, all he's got is a big lie. Well, I think there's also there there's a really interesting a really interesting thread that I think is very relevant uh, even today about the basically the billionaire philanthropist megalomaniac who thinks I know how to fix <laughs> yeah. the world and so yeah. I'm going to fix the world and everybody's too dumb to keep up with me and so I'm going to be the parent here. And it's a very alluring sort of trap for anybody to fall into. Everybody falls into that. If everybody was just as smart as me, then the world would be a better place. You know, how many Twilight Zones have we had about that, right? Ozymandias falls exactly for that trap. In his view, if you really boil it down, the problem is nobody's as smart as he is. Well, and he even says that, right? right. He's like, I, I only look to people who, you know, have been dead for 300 years, uh, yeah. you know. And, and so I, I um, yeah, I, I mean, the, the thing is watching it again, a, a fascinating thought, something that would absolutely, I think, be worth it, especially since, you know, obviously Snyder has had his go at the, uh, the Justice League director's cut, which we're going to be seeing, you know, as of this recording in just a little bit, um, the way that's being released. I would really love Watchmen to have him go back and recut it as a four episode miniseries, because that's one of the things that I really that really stood out to me here in the in the director's cut. And I don't remember the the theatrical cut well enough to know how many times it happened or not. But there are specific breakpoints in this that are like this is the end of this part of the story. And I think right. that would work really well for like what Tarantino attempted to do with the um, when he took the extended cut of the Hateful Eight and he turned it into four episodes for Netflix. I think it'd be a really interesting experiment yeah, with it, this. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting because you know they are just going to release Justice League as four hour film. They're not going to do you know the the episodes, which is and it, I mean I, to me I'm I'm happier with that personally. But you know I think one of the things that is really interesting is you know each of the comics tends to be a part of the in Watchmen is a part of the story, you know, and you're seeing it from a person's point of view. And to me, that's one of the things I don't think is, gets enough credit in this film. I think the editing on this movie is fantastic because it the way that it weaves the throwback scenes and the flashbacks is really well done because you never lose your sense of where you are in the story. The film always lets you know 
what's happening. Like you have a sense of what's happening in the present, quote unquote, but you you also know you're going back in time to see this person's story. And I think he does a really good job. Uh, the editing of this movie, I think, is pretty masterful in the sense of how to weave the most important parts of these characters' backstories together to make it work. And the director's cut, I think this is the thing that makes it better because it's 24 minutes longer, is you get to do more of that. And you really need that in this story. You need these interconnections between these characters as well as their own pasts to help explain one of the biggest questions in this movie, which is why would anybody put these suits on and do this? That's one of the big questions. And by spending more time with these characters and interweaving these backstories, uh, you get a better answer to that question, which I think is, is, again, I, I would personally call it uh, an editing masterpiece and how to to make that work. I don't I'm not as enthusiastic about it as you are. Um and I think it's because watching this, you know, the the director's cut, it still felt certain moments felt a little too indulgent and still felt like they could have been trimmed or removed. Um what specifically? Well, I mean, we can sit down and do a commentary if we want or whatever. But one of the things that really stuck out to me was the movie is very engaging. But what I think it really needed more than anything was to move the adaptation a little bit even further down the road of having a singular character's voice motivating it. And it's on the verge of that with Rorschach, right? Right. But there's almost a sense of what I, what I was thinking of was how would I, how would I crack that nut? Say I was put, I was a producer on this and I was, I was approaching it and I was like, here's your, your mission. I think what could have helped this movie is to have some sort of narrative overlay on it. Where instead of forcing for the ending, which is a, such a heavy homage to the way the book ends with Rorschach's journal sure. sitting there, have it instead take the approach of the novel Dracula by Bram Stoker, where it's a collection of diaries, but there's still a sense of a singular narrative over it. Like, like Van Helsing has put together – have you ever read – for anybody who hasn't read the original Dracula – it is uh, it's basically like it reads as if a bunch of people's diaries have been put together and excerpts you know taken out and put together so that you get this sense of narrative and then at the end it's uh you find out it's been put together by the survivors and they're like you know we we put all of this together so that people could learn from this lesson and so there there's this sense that you can't steal Rorschach's fate because that undercuts his whole character if you do that but i think that if they just take that extra step of having just a little more cohesion to the point of view through the film, I think that would have helped it. Okay. I, I no, I, 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 I mean, obviously I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't hate that, honestly, maybe to add even more of the narration from Rorschach, because obviously the comic is, I mean, that the, the comic is, done that way as well i thought it was interesting that this movie continues the idea of the narration we got from you know mm-hmm. 300 uh and you have some of the same structure then with with somebody telling a story 
um, and their point of view. And I would say I, I do feel like this movie, if most of the point of view is really from Rorschach's point of view. I mean, he's the one kind mm-hmm. of giving you context to how to think about everything you're seeing um, with his narration, you know, even from the very beginning. Um, and uh, whether you like it or not, I feel like you you see this world many ways through his eyes. Um, how disturbing that is, 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 is up to you and how sensitive do you are to what's actually happening with the storytelling. Um, but I, you know, I, I think it is really fascinating. So, um, I have a, a really big question for you. Obviously when you do a movie like this, you know, casting is a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what you thought, of the cast because obviously you know these are characters that have sat with so many people for so long and um so how did you feel like uh you know zach did with the the casting of the movie i I mean i think all the performances are great i mean jackie earl haley as rorschach is absolutely magnificent i mean he's even if you don't compare him to the comic you can tell that he's just this is he owns this mm-hmm. character. I think he's fantastic. Um and he wanted to play the character too. Right. Like he lobbied to play the character. So I think and many times when an actor does that, you know that they're probably gonna be good because this means so much to them. Right. And well, I mean it can go wrong too, but <laughs> as we've seen in other histories. This is true. You know, her. this is true. But yes. Uh, he he deserved this. I can't see it the true measure of success for me in terms of uh, an actor's portrayal is can I see anybody else? Well, I mean, sure you can make the argument that you can, but do I want to see anybody else in the role? No, I, I see this Rorschach and I'm like, there, there I can tell there's nobody else that could have played this role the same way. Absolutely. Fantastic. I think that Jeffrey Dean Morgan did a fantastic job. Yeah. I think that the like he is the comedian. Yeah, that's the crazy thing. Like he just plays that character to perfection. Yep. Um, and I think what he does with helping you find any sympathy for this outrageously terrible character is phenomenal, and his performance allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Uh, I think that the director's cut uh, does wonders for. Uh, Malin Ackerman's performance. I think it's uh Really? I do. Wow. I do. Okay. Uh I didn't think she did anything special when I when I saw the theatrical cut and in this I was like, okay. I, I'm I don't know if it's just that I was crabby back then and I just didn't see what it was or something like that, but <laughs> I, I don't know whether it was an extra four minutes here or there, but yeah, I totally totally was on board. I think Patrick Wilson did a great job. I I think Patrick Wilson did a great job, and I give him a lot of credit because he is not at all who I would have really cast as Dan. Uh, he was too in shape, basically. I thought that it's true. I thought that it's Night true. Owl, they try to hide it, yeah. with his frumpy clothes, and and I think they do a pretty decent job of that. But no, you're right. I mean, in the comic, he really is an overweight, middle aged man. Much more than he is in the movie. Yeah, he he doesn't even have dad bod. He's he's supposed to be. He's really out of the game. You know, <laughs> it, it's true. No, he he does. I was looking at the comic the other day because you know I just got it again, and uh, I was like, oh man, yeah, because in the movie, 
they play it off as much as they can because they obviously have to have him in shape for all the other parts of the role that he has to do. Um, but yeah, but he does that thing that which people always, I think, um, praised uh, Christopher Reeve for with Superman, mm-hmm. where he becomes that frumpy character. Yeah. Like, and all of his little mannerisms and his uncomfortableness in his own skin, like, I think that's the thing I always appreciate. I, I think his his performance may be, next to Haley's, I think this I think it might be my favorite, just because I think he's having to work the hardest to make his character come to life yeah. for most of the movie. I agree. And that that's... The, the thing is, I still am not crazy about the Ozymandias performance. Um... It didn't hold enough menace for me. I, I like even when I'm seeing him, you know, beat the tar out of Rorschach and uh, and Night Owl. I, I don't feel any menace from him. I don't know if that's intentional, um, but it doesn't really come across. I think Carla uh, and I always butcher her last name. Gugino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's how you pronounce her last name. Anyway, Gugino. Yeah, yeah, I think she's great. It's the original Sil- Silk Spectre. Um, the I think that, which Zach has come out and said that would be his choice for Catwoman. So, uh, that would have been a fantastic choice. I say yes, please to yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'd have been on board for that. But I think all of the I think, you know, and I, I said this um when we were talking about three hundred. Snyder gets good performances out of people. He does, even if I'm not crazy. Like I, I'm definitely not crazy about the Ozymandias performance, but um. I can, st- you know, still overall, it's like this is a director who's I can, it's very clear that he has communicated to these actors what he wants. Mm-hmm. They have no question about what their director is going for. Mm-hmm. Um, the one the one thing that takes me out of it in terms of the performances, and I really want to get your take on this, is I think that at times this is possibly some of the worst wig work I've ever seen in a film. The wigs, uh, yeah, really, it's Ozymandias is really bad. His wig yeah. is is pretty terrible. I think Gugino's wig is way off on occasion. Like, mm-hmm. and when Ozymandias yeah. is there with Dan, when you have a guy with his real hair, and then you have Ozymandias, yep. I'm like, yep. man, this is just way. And I don't yeah, understand. Right. I don't understand yeah. why it doesn't make any I, sense to me. So, so I'm I'm wondering though, and I, it's probably not. I'm probably reading way too much into this. But I wonder if it's the fakeness of Ozymandias compared to the reality of Dan. Uh, I'm sure that's reading way too much into it. But I I do feel like that everything we have about Ozymandias, because even Snyder decided to go with a a parody of the muscle suit that we were getting in the 90s movies, basically the Batman. That's why his suit doesn't look like it does in the comics, because he specifically kind of wanted to make fun of this guy playing this character and this person with this suit. And so everything about this guy is there's a fakeness to because he's putting on airs all over the place. And again, I'm probably just reading too much into yeah, it. Yeah, if the, you're right. I mean, regardless, the the wig's not good. <laughs> well, but but if the wig work on other characters, like the, the, the Nixon makeup does not land, I almost wonder because I guess this is like people are still getting their hands around digital filmmaking at this point. Sure. And I think that there are a lot of flaws that you get to go past really easily with 300. 
So Mm -hmm. I, I honestly, I think it's probably a technological hurdle and there were, there were plenty of movies in the aughts. Now that we can say that, you know, the 2000 to 2010 uh, frame when digital was really coming to the forefront where there were challenges where the makeup was showing. Oh, sure. Yeah. Film allows you to cheat it a little bit. and Digital is a lot less forgiving. And it just always struck me as odd because it just yeah. stands out to me so much in, in a lot of stuff. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, we can't discount Billy Crudup's performance as oh, no. Dr. Manhattan because I think he plays him very, very well as too. I mean, you know, we only have a few scenes where he gets to be normal mm-hmm. and his playing the detachment of uh dr manhattan is i think phenomenal as he kind of drifts further and further apart and i really love the way that he plays that surprise moment Mm -hmm. where she surprises him Mm -hmm. and he he's like i i haven't been surprised that i don't know how long this is amazing you know like there's this spark in his eyes that you know and and part of that's also all the digital work that they put into the character but you know it's a really good job to see that performance come through in that digital work because obviously he's in the blue. Uh, well, he's he wasn't a blue suit, but he was in a suit that they had blue LEDs on that were shining so that he could have the light with all the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, that and and that really comes off, I think, too the the way they did that. But yeah, it's a great performance by him. Yeah, I do. I I think Crudup did great. Um, I think his I think the real trick with him was his vocal quality. He really mm-hmm. nails it. And again, yeah. that's that's a director yeah. knowing how to talk to his actors. Um yeah. so I have to give him a lot of credit for that. Can I I need to interrupt real quick because you you felt like Ackerman grew on you in the director's cut and I will personally say I think for me she's the weakest link in the film acting wise hmm. to me. I just I it's not that she's bad. I just feel like it could be better personally still. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know when we come to ratings, honestly, she'll probably be the reason that this couldn't be a higher rating for me. Interesting. Um than where it ends. Just because I don't love her performance and I think her performance is really key to this. And I think she does some good work here, but I feel like it could have been I don't know. It's bit, I don't know if this will make sense, but you know, sometimes you can feel an actor's acting, hmm. and if that makes sense, and, yeah. and and for me, I always feel like she's acting and not just being natural. Whereas a character like, um, obviously Jeffrey Dean Morgan here is completely the comedian. He never feels like he's acting. He just feels like that character. Uh, you know, obviously Rorschach is like that too, and I, you know, I think Dan's like that. So. Um, I think when she's surrounded by all these people who feel much more natural in their character's skin, she just never quite felt as comfortable as I would have liked personally. Interesting. I I don't discount that. Um, I mean, I don't think she's you know giving an Oscar performance here, but I yeah I I don't know. I I guess just this time, I there there were just I guess a couple of moments where she did jump through. I think mm. and it's good you know, and, and, and did get the character just right in the moment. Like when she meets the comedian, like when you see her in the past mm-hmm. at the gathering where the comedian burns the map and everything and 
she's starstruck by Dr. Manhattan and -hmm. starstruck by the comedian. That's really great choices in that scene. Um, I think that in the quieter moments with Dan, like when they're at dinner, I think she does a great job. Um, like their, their first yeah, dinner together. Okay. Um, yeah, I could see that. So yeah. like, I was actually just rewatching some of the movie before we started and, and I had got a chance to see that scene and I do agree. I think those are some of her better moments for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so. I think that, I think that's really what it is, is in those quieter moments that she would, you know, she, she gave exactly what was needed. So I think that's probably mm-hmm. why, you know, just clicked more for me this time. So so one of the things we, we had talked a little bit about and um, I wanted to get your take on is that, you know, I, a lot of people have disliked this movie and, and you know, it's one of those movies where people point to and ah, it's not good. And, oh, it's so terrible. Uh, Zack Snyder's the worst. Um, <laughs> but I was, uh, you know, it, it's all it's all the same things we, we hear online about Zack Snyder all the time. But. Um, and one of the the main reasons for us doing the show is to get away from all of that yeah. and just really discuss this guy and his work uh, honestly. Um, and so, but I was thinking to myself, and you were kind of talking about this idea of there are some points where you felt maybe he's a little too slavish or, you know, he, he's a little too indulgent. But I think one of the things that really surprises me about the director's cut specifically is the way in which Zach will specifically go for the shot in the comic many of the in, in the same way he did with 300 right he, he's going for that specific page but then at the same time he was not so beholden to the comic that he was not willing to change it to try and make it the best story for what he thought would work best on screen and not just be like oh no we can't do that because that's how it wasn't how it was in the comic and what was great about that i thought and I think that this is going to be a Zack Snyder trend as we look at the rest of his super world work when we get there. But Zack is very, I feel like this is where we kind of see this trend really coming into fruition because we've also seen 300 now and this is his second big comic adaptation. He's He's very reverential to what he's pulling from. But at the same time, he's not afraid to add something that he feels like is going to help his story be better so specifically in 300 we talked about the whole idea of you know adding the story for his wife Mm -hmm. and allowing her to have more screen time having a bigger part of the story uh and then here of course you know adding certain subplots and then of course changing the end because he thinks it's going to work better for screen i think that's I think that's something he just doesn't get enough credit for, honestly. Yeah, I um it it's it's tough because it's such a tough in in the context of Watchmen in specific, had he stayed quote unquote slavish to the book and had the alien show up, I think that that lands so badly with an audience nowadays that it just doesn't work. Comic book Yeah when I'm reading it, you're reading it. Anybody who's into comics, they read that, they see that they're like, Oh, that's clever. Okay. Ha ha. You know, I get it. You do that with a movie where you're trying to appeal to as broad an audience as possible. 0.0% chance. You're not getting somebody in that theater. That's going to laugh. So yeah, it's, it's definitely something where, um, I think he made, well, 
you know, the screenwriters and he made the best possible choice given the circumstances sort of thing. And I would love to talk through the process with them to see, because I don't know enough of the backstory of the film. Like I said, this is the first time I've come back and watched it in years. Um, I, I, I wonder in a large way whether they decided from the outset we have to change the ending and then they worked backwards from that to see what made sense in terms of the Dr. Manhattan and Ozymandias storyline or whether they made the choice and they got there organically as to what, you know, like I, I, I would be very curious to know what fed what because I think there's there's an argument either way and I just want to know whether my presumption was right. Sure. So. Well, I thought it was did a little little bit of reading and and just to find out obviously Alan Moore will never see any of his adaptations and he doesn't want his mm-hmm. name on any of the movies. Uh Dave Givens, you know, who worked on Watchmen, worked on the movie. Obviously, he's happy with it. I even saw him in some of the extras. He had, you know, he has no problem with putting his name on this. But what was fascinating was reading that Alan Moore said that this script he thought was probably as close as you could get to doing this in film and doing it justice. That's great. And I was like, you know, if that makes Alan Moore happy, which it's really hard to make Alan Moore happy. <laughs> uh, True. You know, um, that's impressive, you know. And so I, I was I was really impressed by that. And I just thought it was it was really neat to see. But again, the reason I brought that up, because as I do think as we get into his other superhero works, one of the things that people don't seem to give him credit for is the fact that Zach does truly care about the characters he's putting on screen. Mm-hmm. And I think you saw it in 300. I think you see it here. Um, and the reason in which he's he's either changing or creating a, a, a storyline that isn't quite something you've seen before, but he feels like works better, it's because I think he feels like it, it does more credit to the characters from the book. Mm. So like you saw with 300... Like you see here, I think he's tr- he he felt like this works better for these characters, but it's also even just better for the characters' storylines. It makes them better characters. It makes it more interesting, you know. So it, it to me, having followed him for so many years, like that seems to be his motivation. And I just again, I don't think he gets enough credit for that because people just come at him with the hate because it's not what they expected or. You know, it's not their character yeah. version. And so, I don't know. It, it, even with just these two movies, both coming from comics, I'm getting the sense that this this is a guy who does really care about the characters he's working with. Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's no doubt that he is all in. You know, he, he has obviously made a decision. He is all in every step of the way. This is this is a, a an artist at work. You're either going to love it or not love it or be in the middle or, or whatever. Watchmen was one I was always, I, I the, the only way I can really say it, and it's going to sound terrible, but I was always dismissive of a lot of the criticism because so much of it, especially in the circle of people that I ran with, was it's not the book. And that was like sort of the starting point. You can't do that with the character right. because, and it's like it for me that stuff was so tired just out of the gate because, like, like we were saying earlier, it's like you, you got to make room for changes. It, it's a different medium. It's a different time. I mean, this is the most difficult thing 
right, in, in my perspective, is Watchmen comes out in 2009, and it is so distant from the Cold War anxiety that existed when Watchmen came out. Watchmen is completely informed by the terror that was lurking at the, the little brainstem, everybody's brainstem about nuclear war that people were terrified, you know, as the, um, as the song hammer to fall by queen says, you know, we who grew up tall and proud in the shadow of the mushroom cloud, everybody was constantly constantly on the news. Every, you know, everybody was convinced oh, we're one step closer to nuclear war, you know, the doomsday clock, all of this stuff that all informs it. And the difficulty becomes Watchmen winds up becoming a musing on a past mentality that doesn't resonate as strongly today. If it had been adapted in the 90s, it's a lot closer to the source material. More people would have been thoughtful of it. And so having the clean energy sort of masking thing made a lot of sense because it made it more relatable but then it still boils down at the end to the fear of nuclear war. And even though people nowadays should be terrified of nuclear war, <laughs> it's not what dominates the headlines. And so people, you know, it sits, you know, they've, been, they've become dismissive of it, if you will. So I really like that you brought that up because I think it's something that I wanted to talk about because it's one of the things what I felt like this movie felt more relevant even than when it came out in 2009. And part of that is because, so there's a phrase uh, as Hollis and Dan are talking about, you know, why they voted for Nixon. Like they think the guy's a jerk, but they voted for him five times because, well, he wasn't a commie, right? Mm -hmm. So like the choices are so bad in elections that it's like, we're choosing the lesser of two evils, hopefully. Um, there's a great line that Ozymandias says about how biased journalism sells more newspapers. And I was like, hmm, it might not sell newspapers these days, but it sure does ruin news organizations. Well, uh, and so that felt really timely. <laughs> Nowadays, it's clicks instead of newspapers. Exactly. It, sells more, it gets more clicks. Um, this idea, too, of the heroes thinking that we're protecting people from themselves and that the mm -hmm. American dream had come true and in Instead of a dream, it's turned into a nightmare. And then last but not least, this idea that Dr. Manhattan talks about how they say they're creating heaven, but their heaven is populated with horrors. Yes. And I just felt like so many of these things were hitting so perfectly on so many of the things that we're dealing with in our own culture right here and now that this became even more almost poetic and disturbing all at the same time. I don't discount what you're saying. I think that it's very insightful and I'm, I, I I'm with you. Uh, the one thing I want to hit on is that I think that the way Morgan plays the line and that this is where you and I can disagree, but what really struck me was I think that probably the first time I saw the film and for, you know, for a while or whatever, it's really easy to take the line, you know, what happened to the American dream, it came true, you're looking at it. I think that 
people look at that scene and say, oh, look, he's commenting on the state of everything, but he's the comedian. He's right. I take that, especially the way Morgan delivers the line. He's saying that about himself. The American mm-hmm. dream is to get to do whatever you want without consequence is what he's saying. Right. He's right. I'm no, the American I, I dream. You. Yeah. No, but but yep. that that's sort of a point that I've I've gone back and forth with on people where he's, you know, oh, it's this grand statement about it's like, no, the the comedian's so narcissistic. He's talking about himself. He's saying he's right. the American dream. It came true. And it, you know, it's um but then that well, in and no, and, and I absolutely agree with you because I mean, to get super philosophical, it reminds me of Yuval Levin's book, Fractured Republic, where he's talking about this idea that we become so individualistic that basically it's the comedian. We we desire to live in a world where we could basically do whatever we want, and then we wonder why we live in a fractured society because everybody is trying to do exactly whatever it is that they want and get away with it. And so that's where that's where I was actually finding the connection. It's actually it's actually really interesting because and this is sort of a rabbit hole, but like so long as we're talking like the, the bigger thing where you talk about, you know, people want to do just their own thing without consequence sort of thing. That was actually why after a, a short time, uh, I couldn't play any of the Grand Theft Auto games after a while. Because yes, thank because you. I was yeah. I, I was playing it and I was having a good time. I was oh look you could do that oh look you could do that and then there was this one time where because I could it, without consequence in the game you know go and carjack somebody and then go run and cause a car accident with the ambulance and I thought to myself why would I put this in my head why would I indulge this part of myself mm-hmm. and absolutely uh, you know and I know I sound like a grumpy old man but I was a young grumpy man at the time that I came to that mm-hmm. conclusion. Um, and that that's just, that's just what's really interesting is because I think if you look at the, the watchman as a whole, the group as a whole, the problem is they should have functioned as a cohesive unit, but everybody had their own idea about how it was going to work. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's why everything breaks down. The comedian is the guy, the second you give him an ounce of power, Look at what he becomes. And then he gets sanctioned by governmental powers because they find use for him. And then they, you know, rely on the, uh, the you know, the, the lingering patriotism of a guy who basically becomes a walking god to, mm-hmm. you know, to give the comedian another, uh, yep. you know, uh, weapon in his arsenal, basically make him untouchable sort of thing. Um yeah, so I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those things where there is definitely um, plenty to think about with this film, and, and a lot that that really you can kick over in your head. And I think that it does it does survive as its own work, independent of what it's adapting. Um, and that's the sort of thing that I think that people. It just always fascinates me. Do you? I, I, we, we've sort of touched on it. We've danced around it a little bit, though. I mean, do you think that the overall animus that some people have toward it was motivated by it was in a no-win scenario with them because it wasn't ever going to be the book? Do you think it's because people just don't like the way Zack Snyder does things? 
Do you think it's because his style doesn't work with this type of story and it needed a different style for it to work for them? What What do you think the disconnect is there? Man, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think, I do think that this is a Kobayashi Maru for Snyder in so many ways. Um, one, I don't, I think it's because he doesn't get to release the better version of the movie. Mm. Um, two, I do think it was that people weren't necessarily ready for it. And three, you know, people have made so much of different things. Like I, if I hear one more person talk about this hallelujah sex scene, then how weird it is. And I'm like, it's kind of the point of the, the scene though. Like it's, it's supposed to be kind of like awkward and gratuitous because of these people have, have, have like, it goes to answer the question, like, why would people put on these suits and do this? Um, so I, but I, I, I do, I, I, I think that there is a, a really, there wasn't a, a win for him here, but I think it's interesting because as the years have gone on, more and more people I think have come back to this and seen it for what it is than what they th- thought it should be. I think that uh, I want to address that sex scene in specific. I'm not a fan of it. And it's because I think that it goes on too long. I do. I do think it's indulgent. I try to contextualize it in the sense that specifically with her, we see two sex scenes. One where there is a being who can please her in every possible way. While at the same time coming up with clean energy, right? Talk about multitasking. And she's not satisfied by it. She's not satisfied by the the physical potential there because it's emotionally lacking. And instead, she finds emotional fulfillment when that act happens with somebody with whom, who truly cares for her, who truly understands her, who truly has made an an effort to connect with her. And so those two scenes act as an, I, I do think they actually act as an important, uh, you know, sort of arc for her. But I still think both of them are too long and a little prurient. Like it, I'm not a prude. I won't ever tell anybody what they can or cannot watch, but for my money, there is a certain duration I'm willing to watch. And then after a certain point, it's like, you know, this should really be on like one of those sites, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like it just, it really, it really gets to that point. No, I, and I, I mean, I we're in a hundred percent agreement in that way. Um, I think the thing that you just explained was perfect though, because it's like, yes, there's a story reason for these to be here whether or not it needs to be as long as it is i absolutely 100 percent agree i don't need it to be as long as it is either but i i'm not going to get upset about it being there and being the way it is because it absolutely is a story point for these two characters who have felt completely powerless in their own lives for so long and now are finding the release of that but in the context of relationship where they both finally feel seen and heard 
You know, this actually, I, I, this sticks on something, and we definitely have a supersized episode here, but I think there's so much to, to delve into. We're just having too much fun. I mean, fun. it is a supersized movie. True. Very true. <laughs> but do you think that Watchmen becomes a circumstance where Snyder falls back on music video habits because there are so many scenes and or montages where it's the entire damn song playing out you know the, the opening credits right um uh, uh you know the times they are a changing by bob dylan yeah right okay it that's a, okay i dig that song i love it but then hallelujah basically the whole thing plays and then you have these moments where it's like i almost feel like they're cutting to the song like he's making a music video within the context of the movie and i wonder if that's just something where and like, did he have that in mind? And that, so they cut to that. And should it have been the editor's job to say, look, I know what you're going for and I dig it, but the audience is going to start to get a little tired of this by the end. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do see what you're saying. Um, I, I do feel like that's one of those things where Zach is an artist goes a little bit farther than I might have chosen. Mm -hmm. But it's his artistic choice, right? You know, mm -hmm. and so I can quibble with him as to whether or not I would have made that same choice, but I can't quibble with why he's making the choice in the first place because I understand it, I get it, and I agree that it should be there in and in and of itself, but I, what I'm saying is I might have been the same way as you are and even just... Maybe we could maybe we could like cut this you know we 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 could cut thirty five seconds off of this yeah. you know we don't um, we don't need you know a whole two minutes you know a minute so. here a minute there all of a sudden you got yeah. you're, you're back yeah. at like a two hour and forty five minute movie and you didn't really miss anything <laughs> um, that, correct me if I'm thinking about this if my my thinking is wrong about this though but one of the things I definitely know about the the Dawn of the Dead extended version is it's bloodier than than the theatrical cut. Um, I know that uh, uh, 300 is what it is. This seemed to me like more, uh, just more graphic uh, with with some of the stuff. Is, is that accurate or is it just that it's been so long since I saw the theatrical cut? I think it's just been so long since you've seen it. Okay. So, um, and I'm like, I was, that scene specifically, I'm thinking of as the, the, alleyway scene where it's just it is very graphic mm -hmm. um, but I thought it was really interesting because the comedian is saying in his um, something about how or somebody is saying and I can't remember if it's a comedian or not but that you know you don't have to have atomic weapons basically to be dangerous mm -hmm. <laughs> and what we're seeing is is these human beings who are highly trained are absolutely dangerous you know I mean they are just ripping these people to shreds um and in a way that they don't have to be. Uh, so, you know, it, 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 it really does show this idea of like how we use power and how it can get abused. And it's another one of those really big topics that's a part of Watchmen about the abuse of power. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a, absolutely a part of this, this film as well. And we see it by even the characters that quote unquote are the heroes of the movie, you know, of them completely abusing their power. Um, and, and in some ways, because they're getting their 
kicks off, you know, like yep. they blew off some steam by completely ruining people's lives forever. Regardless of whether those people deserved it or not is not the question. Like those people will never walk right again, ever. Mm-hmm. Like there's no coming back from that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, there's, um, uh, it's it's interesting too because I almost wonder how it plays how it would play today with modern audiences because one of the core issues that we see in flashbacks and everything is people are calling for the police. You know, we don't want vigilantes. We don't want person to person justice. We want the cops, and there's. I, I almost wonder if there would be like a quasi allergic reaction from modern audiences, given the way that that conversation has gone in recent times about the fact that the motivation of the public is that they're out there protesting to demand for the police as opposed to these masked vigilantes, which, you know, of course, you know, the whole point is turning it on its head because as kids, we all grow up fantasizing being about Batman and Superman and sort of the, you know, you know, one of the themes of Watchmen is like, what would the real world look like if you had this non-governmental organization? You know, you had people that just did these things that would eventually become kind of horrific for everybody. That would be a terrible situation. And so you need whatever institutions you have to protect against that sort of thing from happening. Yeah, no, I I think that is a good question. And, you know, some of those scenes where we see people rioting and everything and fits a little too close to home living where i live here in the northwest where we uh see that nightly uh in our downtown area so yeah it's a good question um and uh and I, again it is one of the things which uh surprised me about just how this movie uh in many ways i think is more relevant now than it was when it came out and in many in part of that is because I think that many of the themes that which Alan Moore was writing to in the book, yes, there were so many of them that were specific to the 80s, but there's many of those problems to which we still have today. And I think Snyder, in some ways, makes it a little bit easier for the film to sit in the present and even the future because of the changes that he makes. Mm. Um, and that is, again, something I think he doesn't get credit for, which leads me to one more question before we get to our ratings. Because, I, again, I know we've got a supersized episode here, but I think people will be okay with it. Um, we've got to talk about the Snyderness. Mm. Uh, and so, I, you know, like 300... I think it's kind of easy to see the Snyder in this movie. Yeah, no, there's you, you could take his name off the credits and it, within one minute, I'd be like, oh, this is a Zack Snyder movie, right? And, and you could say to me, no, it isn't. I'd be like, no, you're lying to me. I know that like, yeah, this is so. Oh, it's a Deborah Snyder movie. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, there, there is a 0.0% chance you could mistake this movie for anybody else's work. That, I mean, honestly, I've, I know some people might roll their eyes, but I remember taking a film class uh, a long time ago where the the professor's point of view was if you couldn't tell who directed the movie by looking at, you know, a, a selected picture, then what was the point? Basically, it, it should like he he was definitely in the 
auteur mindset. You know, when I sit down and I look at a Hitchcock movie, I can tell it's Hitchcock. I can tell it's Kubrick. Uh, I, you know, these other things, I can't tell who you could take the director's name off it. I couldn't pick who it was. I don't think that that is a, an absolute truth by any stretch of the imagination, uh, because it, it strips a lot of, uh, gray area out of it, but because there've been plenty of fine directors who people will never remember their names and they did a fantastic job with the material. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I think, this is the sort of movie what's really interesting is in this march that we have here where we've gone directly watching in a row, Dawn of the Dead, 300, Watchmen. Like this is a watershed moment, I think, because 300 is a five-star film. And Watchmen, regardless of where somebody might rate it with regards to that scale, this is somebody who is in complete control of his craft. I can tell that everything here is done with intent. This is somebody doing a thing because this is what he saw. This is what he wanted to do. This is how he got it done. And that to me is, that's quite an achievement. I, I really like what you said there because I do think it is, it is the very definition of an artist, you know, and um, like you said, when you can see, Dawn of the Dead, 300, and this. This is a director to which each film is continuing to refine that style and make it even more pronounced. And maybe that's one of the things that people don't like about Zack Snyder. I don't know. Is that he has such a pronounced style and maybe you just don't respond to it. But, you know, like you said, to be a director and completely have your vision come to fruition on screen... And again, this is where I think, you know, we were talking about the idea of the director's cut comes in and you can really have that director's vision fully on screen. You know, it's sad to see that so many times Zach's vision has gotten messed with in his line of work, you know. Um, and I do wonder if possibly the reaction might have been a little bit better from just the general public when this came out um, because this version of the movie is clearly the better version of the movie. Um, regardless of whether you love it or not, I don't think you can argue that this isn't the better version of the film. What I think is going to be interesting, because as we march along here, um, I think that Watchmen has the benefit that social media hasn't quite taken off when it comes out. I think that if social media, as we understand it today had existed at the time that Watchmen came out, that I I honestly think that on social media this would have been savaged. It would have been torn apart and there would have been trending hashtags um, about uh, Dr. Manhattan's nudity uh, and stuff like that. <laughs> you know you know I'm right. It was it would have been a hashtag like hashtag big blue penis. You know it. I do. I I hope that we have not wished that hashtag into existence personally because I'm knocking on wood right now. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ever? Is it blue wood? Um, but I will say that I think that as a result, this film escaped the anim the full scope of the animus that could have washed over it. And I, I'm very interested because as we go continually through the next stage of his career, whether we'll see any signs of him adapting 
resisting or simply dropping the mic and saying, hate it or love it. I don't care. This is what I did. Right. I, I'm, I'm legitimately interested to see if I can detect any sort of course, not course correction is the wrong term, course alteration because of feedback he may have gotten online. Well, I mean, you know, at this point, I'm just waiting for the Zack Snyder Funko Pop, you know, because every other director gets one. Uh, and so... Do they? Um, but, uh, well, the- yeah, I mean, I saw Avid DuVernay the other day. I've seen J.J. Abrams. I mean, like... They have Funko I, Pops? I really love a George... Yeah, I'd really love a George Lucas one. That would be cool. No, you, you know? wait, wait, um, wait. Oh, look, I know this is a rabbit hole. This, I know this has nothing to do with Watchmen, but Funko <laughs> yeah. Pops of directors? Yeah. Yep. Why? I don't know. Okay. All right. Anyway. Going on. So what would you rate this, John, uh, this director's cut? Okay. I think that first I need to to let you know that the theatrical cut wound up with, I, I mean, I, I wasn't giving things star ratings back then or whatever, but if, if you said, what do you rate it out of five back then? I probably would have been like two and a half or three, you know, it's all right. Um, I got to be honest that, I was originally coming out of this saying three and a half, uh, but not just because of this discussion, but because of the fact that I realized over the last uh, day or two that I will go back and at least watch parts of this again, because it was interesting. It was neat to look at and it flowed well. And I liked the way they did those things. I know that this is a a movie I'll come back to now in the future. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it a four out of five. So that's where, where are you at? That's great, man. I, I, I wondered where you're going to land. And I mean, whoo, four out of five is, is good stuff. Um, and it's cool to hear because I don't think you would have said that before that you would return to the film, no. you know, if we'd just been a theatrical cut. Um, so that is, uh, man, well, that's a huge win. So another win in the Zach column yeah. uh, with John Mills. <laughs> What's happening? Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, you're turning <laughs> I, into a fan. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm becoming everything that I hate. Oh, no. <laughs> you're supposed to hate at least on the internet oh that's right <laughs> um so i i i can't give this five because i just don't like ackerman's performance enough but i would say that and and, and because of that it's not quite the same level as what 300 is so i will give this 4.75 out of 5. Wow. Four, um, somebody contact Letterbox. We got to start yeah, giving quarter stars. I know. Um but it I you know so if it was on Letterbox it's four and a half but I mean to me it's it's almost perfect. It's just not quite there. And and part of that has to do with you know creating something that so many people thought was unfilmable for so many years. Zach created a version of this film which not only do I think as I mentioned earlier is more timeless and therefore a better version of the film for viewing audiences f- for now and in the future. But it's just a an incredible achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a movie that I enjoy re-watching every once in a while. I mean, again, this is not one of those superhero films that you pop in every five minutes. No. One, because it's three hours long. Um, but two, um, it's because I do think it's a movie to which is good to sit with for a while. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I kind of was almost feeling from you when you were giving your ratings is like, 
that this movie had been like sitting with you since you've watched it and like you've been thinking about things mm-hmm. and like that's the the sign of a good movie so really excited that we we're making a Zack Snyder fan fanboy out of you right now. Well, <laughs> uh, so we're at the point though that we can start to rank oh, yeah. really. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, what would be your rankings then for the first three films? Uh, I mean, three hundred. I, I don't know if three hundred will ever be knocked out of the top spot. So, but right now it's going to be three hundred, and then Watchmen, and then Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, right there with you. So, uh, and uh, it's it's interesting because I think Watchmen, even though I didn't give as high enough rating, like I think because of the thematic elements, it could almost like rival depending on what my mood was. You know? Okay. So I'm I'm probably a little bit closer to that that level than than you would be. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think with craft and everything that we've talked about, you know, with the Snyderness and everything. I do think Watchmen is the more complete, fully realized, uh, and, and, and in many ways, perfect Zack Snyder film so far. I think this is almost to that point, but you know, I, I, I gotta be honest, and I promised you guys, we promised you guys we would be. There's just a few things that, you know, for me personally, it, it just doesn't quite that reach that level, so. So what have I signed up for next? What what comes up next so that anybody listening along oh, yeah, knows what's coming question. up next? Um, I no, I was thinking about this myself. Uh, so the next movie, we have The Guardians of Gahul. Uh, so an animated film by Zack Snyder. So that will be really fun. Uh, some great voice talent behind that as well. Uh, then after that is Sucker Punch. We're going to be watching the extended cut of that because there's no official director's cut, but we'll be watching the extended cut. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we've got Man of Steel. Uh, and then BVS, Batman v Superman, The Ultimate Edition. Uh, and then after that, of course, it is Zack Snyder's Justice League. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, John and I decided that um, we're going to put ourselves through watching Justice League um, <laughs> again. I haven't heard that Justice oh, League. It's, I like it's that. all over Twitter and the Snyder fandom. But um, I like that. Just to, so we could compare to see like how much was cut out and like have that conversation i think it'll be an interesting conversation and then of course this year too we've got uh army of the dead that's going to be coming out on netflix so we'll also be talking about that film so a lot of good stuff coming up here for everybody here john on on snyder cuts and obviously it's been a ton of fun for us to do this so uh, before we get out of here and get to next week where we're flying around with some owls and not the harry potter kind where can people find you well, you can find me lurking on uh, social media as Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, Letterboxd and uh, and Goodreads, those are, I mean, they're the last bastions of nice, non-toxic social media-ness out there. I'm also on, on Vero, uh, which is actually Zack Snyder's uh, preferred um, social media service, which is interesting. Um you know, and Twitter and all the blah, blah, all the other stuff too. But you can find me over on the Nerd Party, actually, on a show called House Lights, where we look at the the careers of directors. And you can also find me over on the Nerd Party on Aggressive Negotiations, a fun Star Wars podcast that uh, looks at the thematic elements and some of the quirkier sides of the galaxy far, far away. And I have a very charming co-host on there by the name of Matthew Rushing. 
Yeah. I was going to say, would we say charming? But um, You may notice maybe, that, that I, I, I paused for a second because I couldn't believe I paid yeah, you such a compliment. I appreciate that. I mean, yeah. you want to be intellectually honest on this podcast. So, well. <laughs> um, you could... Okay. Well, you could find me on social media platforms under Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, so if I'm there, like uh, you know, search Pharaoh, I'm there. Twitter, the, all, all these places. Um, you can also find me here on the network doing the Orb and Literary Treks with Chris Jones as we're talking about one, uh, the books and the comics of Star Trek, and then of course Deep Space Nine on the Orb. We've got the main 602 Club show. We're talking about all the fandoms we love. John's frequently a guest over there as well. Uh, so I hope you will check that out. And then over on the Nerd Party Network, I also do another show called Outpost with Drea Kaufman as we're wrapping up the Harry Potter series. We've been going through one chapter at a time. But you know what, guys? Thank you so much for joining us. This is Snyder Cuts. Snyder Cuts.